we have the, uh, the joy and the privilege this morning to sit under the teaching of Reverend Tony Giles. There's a short biography in your bulletin if you'd like to look at that a little later. Um, so I'm not going to repeat those things. I will tell you one thing about Tony um, that I've experienced. Um, Tony is a pastor. He is a shepherd. He is an amazing listener. He gives godly counsel. He loves Jesus and he loves his people. And what he wants for you and for me today is that we would know the height, the depth, the width, and the breadth of the love that God has for us in Jesus. So I'm going to invite Tony to come forward. Well, Jeff, thank you for that. Um, I, when I have the chance to introduce myself, I don't like to do that, frankly, but um, occasionally I will say the two great surprises of my life are the lavish grace of God for us in Christ and that I am a pastor. That was not uh, the plan. <laughs> Uh, but the Lord has his way with us, doesn't he? And uh, so today I stand before you uh, delighted uh, for those two reasons. Um, the lavish love of God for us in Christ and the fact that God calls us to be a people. And it's a great privilege and honor uh, for me to be in your midst today. Greetings from Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Franklin, uh, Tennessee, just up your road. Uh, where um, I normally am on a Sunday morning. But uh, happy to be with you this morning. We're going to take a look at a passage that's before you in the Gospel of Mark. And I want to set the stage for that a bit, even before we get to it. Because for you, it's coming out of the blue. It's, you were not in Mark last week, I presume. And won't be in Mark next week. But uh, the passage before you is one that meets us right where we live. And I hope to explain that or convince you of that in just a moment. Mark had been an eyewitness of Jesus' death and resurrection. He belonged to a founding family member of the Christian church. He was a companion with Peter and then Paul. And if you've ever opened the book of Mark before, you know that he is a compelling storyteller. And in particular, the story that he tells us is about the one that we say that we follow and what he is like. The one who came on the scene saying the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe, which, which is the follow-up to that passage from, exit, from uh, Ezekiel that, that you just endured. <laughs> the reality is that it's a broken world. And as Jesus comes on the scene, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Listen to me and look to me and follow me. The passage that is before us today is, is about the hardship and the agony that we endure in this broken world. It's one of the reasons that I think the Bible commends itself and, and we're ready to believe this because the Bible is so honest about agony and 
hardship in this world. It meets it head on. It calls it what it is. A friend of mine named Stephen Garber that I got to know years ago uh, writes this. There's enough sorrow in the world to make us wonder at the weight of the wounds that we see and hear and feel all day long, every week of our lives. Be still for a moment and think about it. I was still for a moment and thought about the news that I received in these past few weeks of a college roommate with cancer. A 23-year-old cousin's son with cancer. The tragedy that befalls us, the family in our church that is still enduring the news received a year ago of the murder of their son. The unexpected funeral, the miscarriage. Sometimes it seems like it just doesn't stop, Garber writes. And if it isn't the finality of death in in its starkness that overwhelms us, he goes on, then think again about the rest of life. The brokenness of the ordinary and er- that everyone lives with. The disappointments and griefs that make us sigh and sigh again, knowing our frailty as we do, knowing the frailty of the world all around us. And this passage shows us, it convinces us that you can face the grief and the misery of this world Because it is shattered by the redemptive love of God. You see, mingled with our grief in this world is the hope of the world to come. Which at times breaks into this one. And we're going to see that in this passage. Where the world to come breaks into this one. Here it is, Mark chapter 7 beginning with verse 31, extending through verse 37. Then he, Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is God's word. Father, would you now open our eyes, inform our hearts that make, that lead us to make you supreme in our lives. Order our steps, form us and change us, we pray. In the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, I'd like to walk through this passage with you, give you and I want to give you some handholds as, as we do this. Um, I want us to think about the ways of God. I want us to think about the heart of God. 
the hands of God and the purpose of God. And as that outline maybe suggests to you, it raises a question. So where is God in this passage particularly? Well, it was Jesus himself who said in John 14, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I am the Father, and the Father is in me. And the Apostle Paul summarizes all of this by saying, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. When I was in uh, high school, I heard a friend say, ask the question, would you like to see a picture of God? Begging the question, is there such a thing, really? And he said, if I told you I had a picture of God in my back pocket, would you want to see it? And so he had me there. (laughs) I was wondering what was in his back pocket when he said, when we look at Christ, when we see Jesus on the pages of Scripture, we see a perfect representation, as the Scriptures tell us, of the Father in heaven. The ways of God, though, are sometimes curious. Now, I'm not specifically yet talking about this, this curious healing event. But what's behind verse 31, take a look at that verse with me, if you would, for just a moment. And you're going to have to use your mind's imagination because there's no map before you. Now, there might be one in the back of your Bible you could look at later. But when we read these words, that he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis, it should raise a question like it did for the disciples who were traveling with him. You see, Tyre was in the north on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. North of that was Sidon, 25 miles north. And the region of the Decapolis was in the other direction, south. So Jesus, on this little journey, starts by going north and then follows a horseshoe-shaped itinerary 120 miles in length. He goes north to go south. It's like going from Columbia to Atlanta by way of Louisville on foot. And you've got to suppose that more than one of the 12 disciples traveling with him, and perhaps others, Noted somewhere along the way, you know, there was a shorter route. There was a quicker way. That's where most of us would have been thinking this through. We didn't need to go that far to go that distance because we went the wrong way. I missed one turn on my way here this morning, and frankly, I caught it uh, before I'd gotten very far. Otherwise, Jeff, you might have had a sermon ready. We go, when we go the wrong distance to go the right destination, it just doesn't make sense to us. There's no explanation given for this. Maybe it was uh, simply what you could have read and may have read earlier in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus says he appointed 12 that they might be with him. That they might be with him. 
you know, you can make a good case that maybe that's what Jesus had in mind when he goes north to go south, because not long after this moment that we're looking at is when, when Peter says, I know who you are. You are the Christ. Maybe it was somewhere on that journey where things began to click for Peter and the others. But the fact is that God's ways are sometimes curious. You might even say there are no straight lines. Do you know anything about that? <laughs> I'm going to guess that maybe there's parts of your story that are curious. You're curious about the path that the Lord has taken you on. And maybe it's just that. Maybe that the curious path that you've been on, or maybe are on, is that you might be with him. The ways of God are sometimes curious. I want you to also see that the heart of God is moved by our misery. That's verse 32. We read, they brought a man to him who was deaf. Now let's think about this man that they brought to him. Jesus is on this marching tour, a three-year public ministry. And one town after another, something is happening. And frequently, something like this occurs, where Jesus has done something remarkable. Word has spread, in spite of his insistence that it not yet spread. And people will bring to him someone in need. In this case, I want you to think with me about the condition of this man. We read that he was deaf. Most likely from a disease or injury, we don't know that. But because he had a speech impediment that he could speak, but not well, it's likely that, that his deafness was a result of disease or an injury. If you had to choose between losing your eyes and losing your hearing, what would you choose? Think about that. I had, thought of, I had thought about that before coming to this text and was pushed to think about it again. Before you finalize your answer, consider this. This is from Kent Hughes, a pastor scholar who writes, The handicap that this man endured, deafness, was indeed terrible, especially in ancient times. If we were given the choice between blindness and deafness, the idea of losing our hearing does not seem nearly as debilitating as losing our vision. But medical authorities and the deaf themselves tell us otherwise. Terrible as blindness is, the blind do not suffer the social pain and stigma experienced by the deaf. The gawking, impatient stares of those who are not aware of one's condition. There's also the humiliation of being thought stupid because one cannot understand. I had never thought about that. You see, what he's saying is, when you're deaf, you don't look deaf. And when you can't hear and when you can't respond and you can't engage, although it looks like you could and should, the social and the stigma that goes with it and, and the attitudes that follow your inaction and your, in, your unresponsiveness are harsh. 
Thankfully, most of us never have to choose between sight and hearing, but I want you to begin to feel something of what it was like for someone who could not hear. So he's deaf. He also has a speech impediment. The NIV says he could hardly talk. It's an unusual term, meaning that he could speak, but only with great effort and without clarity. That's a hard situation for anyone. That's a little bit of the misery and the agony and the hardship of life in this world. Now, this is a particular kind. We're looking at this one individual. But as we, we need to consider the condition of man, but we also need to consider the heart of Jesus when confronted. You see, what he sees, he sees a unique individual made in the image of God. Jesus never met a nobody, and neither have we. The condition of the man touches the heart of God. The presence of brokenness in the world solicits something from the very heart of God. Uh, Dane Ortland, in a book that I would commend to you entitled Gentle and Lowly, if you're not familiar, writes this. He says that our misery causes his love, Jesus' love, to surge forward. <laughs> Jesus moves toward our misery, not away from it. Unlike some of us, that when we see misery on the street corner, we look the other way or cross the street. Jesus instead moves toward that brokenness. The Apostle Paul captures it like this. The Father of mercies is the one who extends mercy. And an old Puritan named Thomas Goodwin, English pastor of the 17th century, wrote about that passage in Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he calls him the father of mercies. Notice this, it's plural. There is no sin or misery, but God has a mercy for it. He has a multitude of mercies of every kind. So whatever the brokenness is or the agony or the hardship that marks your life or your families or your friends, know this, friends, that the heart of God is moved by that mercy misery, and he has a mercy for it. Okay. The ways of God are curious. The heart of God is moved by our misery. But notice also that the hands of God reveal his heart and his power. You cannot miss that, friends. Verses 33 to 35. This, this man had been a face in the crowd but Jesus comes alongside of this unique, created individual in the image of God, and he, and he leads him aside. He takes him by the hand, taking him aside from the crowd privately. You know, what's going through the, mind, the, the man's mind at that point? Jesus is taking this man away. He really doesn't know what's going to, to, to transpire. Why does Jesus take him away? Well, there's speculation about that. Uh, some have speculated maybe it was to avoid the hostile unbelief of the crowd that was always present as Jesus shows up, going from place to place and doing what Jesus does. There's always some hostile unbelief, and maybe it was for that reason. Uh, 
Maybe it was the unwanted publicity. You know, he's always saying, hey, don't tell people what I've just done. He's going to tell this man that. We'll come back to that in a moment. Maybe it was to avoid making a spectacle of the man before the gawking onlookers. Or maybe it was all three. One, one writer says, he is alone with Jesus, though, now. Removed from the excitement and the distraction of the crowd, his eyes watch Jesus, and he understands that Jesus is about to do something for him, for taking him away must have been for some specific purpose. The hands of God are about to be engaged. And what Jesus does, we might call sign language. It's not the letter communication, but he does something with his hands to communicate what is about to happen and why it's going to happen and what to expect. And this is curious. There's no doubt about it. The first thing that he does is Jesus, with the man face to face now, takes his fingers and places them in the man's ears. Now, my doctor does that, but no one else places their fingers in my ears. It's, it's a bit intimate, but that's what this is about. And Jesus is communicating to him, it's your ears that I will deal with. And then he does something beyond curious for us, where he takes one hand out of, one finger out, and with that hand spits on his hand and uses the other hand to suggest that the man open his mouth, and then he puts that spittle on the man's tongue. We're bizarre now. But you know what, friends? It's one thing to communicate, I'm going to deal with your ears, I'm going to deal with this speech impediment. And that cannot happen without being face-to-face. I mean, think about it. He's not doing this from the side, behind, but these are eyes on eyes, face to face. And you've got to suppose with me what's going on in the heart, in the mind of this individual, looking at the face of Jesus and seeing the face of God. And what we read is, what happens next is that Jesus sighed and he looked heavenward. As if to say, what is now transpiring, what is happening, is from the Father who made you, who created you. The one who made you. It's, this is a heavenly transaction. It's a heavenly moment. This is holy ground. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. It was full restoration. Opened, released, plainly. Not halfway, but the real deal. In some, when God shows up in the midst of your misery and agony and hardship, He comes with more than sympathy. That would be enough for some of us to know that someone knew and someone cared. But He does more than that. He comes with love and He comes with power. Now, if we were to seal this off right here, this would be a beautiful story of Jesus' compassion and his personal intervention. It's a remarkable story. It's compelling. I told you, a compelling storyteller is Mark. 
But friends, there's a more compelling story underneath this compelling story. If we just dig a little, we find a gold mine of redemptive treasure right here. And by the way, this is sort of a lesson in biblical theology. So hold on. Because the purpose of God, point number four, the purpose of God is unfolding and it is certain. When Jesus said, uh, as the text goes on, I've not read it again to you, but when Jesus said, don't tell them about what's happening here, I'm going to do this and then be quiet, if you would. He's doing that repeatedly, right? And the reason is that there is something else bigger and more important than what's just occurred that will take place. And Jesus has a timeline in mind for this. You see, the religious authorities um, would have been ready to squelch Jesus because he was, he was a threat to them, frankly. If word was getting out that Jesus is healing and teaching like this, the religious authorities of the day would have been right on top of it to stop this. Or on the other hand, this growing throng of admirers and followers and disciples of Jesus were ready to crown him. And Jesus isn't ready for either of those. Because there's something else going on. There's a bigger story. In the parallel uh, version of this in Matthew, we, we read this. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute... And many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered. And when they saw the, the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, they glorified the God of Israel. There's a lot going on besides this one man being healed. There's a lot going on. But the story that Jesus had in mind had to do with all of those healings, and it had to do with something tucked away that was a burning issue and driving force in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. When Jesus refers to the man as thick-tongued, that's what the word means, a speech impediment. The word actually means thick-tongued in the ESV. It, ha- it shows up one other place in all of Scripture. And that place is in the Greek translation of Isaiah 35. Now, for you biblical scholars... Uh, That's the Septuagint. The Greek translation of the Old Testament written in Hebrew was what was common in the day in some circles. And in that Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, we find this same Greek word, and that's the only other place it ever occurs. That should cause us to perk up. When Jesus calls the man thick-tongued, he's using... A word from Isaiah 35. Listen to the context. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. Lebanon, oh by the way, that's Tyre and Sidon. It may very well be, as Jesus heads north to go south, that this passage from Isaiah 35 is on his heart and mind. 
as he walks through Tyre and Sidon, Lebanon. And then when he comes to the Decapolis and runs into a mute, the one who cannot speak without clarity, again, thinking of Isaiah 35, where we would read and he would know, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped and the lame shall leap like a deer in the tongue of the mute. Sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And when Jesus, with Isaiah 35 in mind and in his heart, is looking into the face of a mute, deaf man, and what he chooses to do, shouts that the restoration of of speech to a thick-tongued man signals the promised arrival of the day of the Lord. That's what's going on. That everything that we long for in this broken world is remedied and made new and made whole in the day of the Lord. And with this healing event, as strange as it is to us, It signals that what Isaiah talked about is coming to bear. The kingdom of the world to come is breaking into this one. The promised intervention of God in Isaiah 35 was taking place in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus' unusual actions in the Gentile region indicate or reveal that He is the Lord come to restore the image of God in humanity by opening ears and loosening tongues. But here's what's even more significant than that, if I could say it that way. Isaiah 35 is essentially the final chapter of the first part of Isaiah, which is filled with judgment, like Ezekiel 16. And Jesus comes healing the thick-tongued man, but he comes without the judgment of Isaiah. He comes without the judgment that we heard from Ezekiel 16. How can he do that? How can he be true to who he is without violating something in the fabric of the Godhead who is just and righteous and holy? God has come, just as Isaiah promised, but without the divine retribution. And as, and as Tim Keller summarizes it, Jesus has come not to bring retribution, but to bear it for us. Jesus was silent before his accusers. He became mute so that our tongues could be loose to call him king. As Jesus is looking into the face of the one whose life is broken and marred, hardship and agony, he's looking at someone that he not only loves and cares about, but is there to restore to his full humanity and to take upon himself the sin that ushered in the brokenness of all the world. Habakkuk puts it like this, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a great work in your days that you would not believe if told. Did you notice the reaction of the people in this little story? 
They were astonished. Just like Habakkuk said, Look, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if you were told. Wonder and be astounded. In the, in the book of Acts, we read Paul citing that verse and from a Habakkuk 1 in Acts 13, where it's Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection that elicits wonder. But what about just your own basic new birth? <laughs> the fact that you, by faith, born into this world to come, waiting for the world to come. Are you astonished by that? Are you still astonished about that? Or have you forgotten to be astonished by that? You see, this passage, the Isaiah background, and with Habakkuk, and with the Apostle Paul, all of those things prompt us to wonder at Jesus' miracles, especially his resurrection, and, and, and the wonder of our own new birth moving us to lift our praise to him. When we come to him, we come with praise. What do you suppose was the first thing out of that man's mouth? You know, we're not told. we told that he spoke plainly. What do you suppose it was? I have a hunch. I have a hunch it was words filled with gratitude and praise and joy. Just like the work of God in our midst... has that as, it, as its end. Gratitude, praise, and joy. Well, let me finish it this way. If all this is true, and I believe that it is, let it melt you. We find instances throughout the four Gospels in the book of Acts of astonishment all over the place. People are constantly being astonished by this man, his teaching, and his work. But we see plenty of examples of astonishment without faith. Those aren't the same. It's one thing to be astonished, but it's another to believe. We never find, we find astonishment without faith all over the place, but we never find, friends, genuine faith without astonishment. Let that astonish you. And then finally, do you know anything of this heart of God? Do you know anything about the, the, the mercy that, that the Father above extends to you, looking you in the face? He comes face to face with you today at this table, in this word. It is the Spirit of God who takes the truth of God and brings it into your field of view. And as you look at him, friends, do not look away. Do, you need not look away in shame. And you need not look anywhere else because the agony and the hardship of this world that marks your life is received by a Father in heaven whose mercy surges toward you and ends right here at this table. For now. 
It ends right here for now because the world to come, of which this is a foretaste, that world is coming. That Jesus announced, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And we sit here today knowing that that kingdom has come but is coming. It has broken in and we see glimpses of it. We see evidence of it in the healing of a, of a deaf mute. But the world to come comes and it is yours. Ponder anew, we sing, what the Almighty will do. If with his love he befriend thee. Look him in the eyes as he gazes into yours. And let him meet you in your agony and your brokenness. With his love and with his power. To do what he came to do. Father, would you do that? Would you open our eyes to see you more in your fullness of who you are and the grandeur of your love and mercy? Thank you for this episode recorded for us in the Gospel of Mark that has its roots in a passage in Isaiah that, frankly, is strange to us because it's hidden away. Oh, Lord, would we with, uh, with one another... Behold and grasp the reality that the day of the Lord has come into this world. And we live between that day and a day to come. When the world to come and the kingdom of God will be here in its fullness. Would you sustain us? Would you strengthen us at this table? Would you give yourself and your mercy to us? day by day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.